Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Mic check one. Make me see weird. My name is Liam. How old are you? Um, seven. And I like to play with my brother. We like to play with Legos. Yeah, we build all sorts of things. I can't really name all of them because I don't really keep that much track. Well, David is a little boy and he wants to go to war with his brothers, but they say he's too young. And then his father asked him to go and give food to them. And then when he sees a giant named Goliath, he wants to fight. So he asks his brothers, what's going on? Why are you running away from that giant? Because he's big, they say. Um, he says, I wanna fight the giant. And then they say, go to King Saul, he'll tell you what to do. How strong do you think Goliath was? By how much he could lift, I think it would be like 600 pounds or something. Because like he tackled six men, one movie says. And like my parents, each of them, I think they're about like 100 pounds and something, so. Do you think if that was you, would you fight Goliath? <laughs> Um, I don't know, because it would take lots of courage, and most people are very scared to fight a giant bigger than them, especially if you're a kid. So he says, I have my slingshot. I'll just fight him with my slingshot. He goes to the, to that stream, and then he picks up five stones, and then he faces Goliath, and Goliath says, come on, fight me, I will crush you. And then David says, okay, my God will help me. And then he throws the stone at Goliath and it hits him and it knocks him and he dies. Okay, so um, this is David, this is Goliath, this is his slingshot and he's shooting the stone and it's coming right to Goliath. Um, this is his sword, and you can't really, you can't see the men, but, but their, their spears are like sticking up from the battlefield, and um, we learned that even if, even if there's, you're facing a big giant, God's always stronger because he's God. Did you catch that church family? Liam just managed to answer the trickiest question that will be asked of any man. When a woman asks you, asks you her weight, the answer is always a hundred pounds and something.
Fritz Haber was born in 1868 into a well-to-do Jewish family in the small town of Breslau, Germany. From an early age, Haber exhibited a ambitious streak that was to become the hallmark of his life. Blessed with a keen intellect, he decided to pursue a career in chemistry. And upon completing his studies, he threw himself into the primary problem afflicting his world, namely food scarcity. The Crimean War of the 1850s had pushed Europe to the brink of starvation. And in Germany, around 50% of the population struggled with malnourishment. The really maddening thing, though, was that everyone knew the answer. An odorless, colorless gas that comprises 80% of Earth's atmosphere. Nitrogen. You see, nitrogen is key to food production. When you plant a seed in the ground, it quickly begins to absorb all the nitrogen as it is desperately trying to build up its cell walls. The equation then is quite simple. More nitrogen, more seeds. More seeds, more food. Now to be sure, there are some natural places where nitrogen is deposited. You can find it in seaweed, and don't tell me how I know this, but it also is found in manure. But by far, the biggest reserve of them all is in the air we breathe, which presents a problem. How do you capture that and plant it in the soil? Because as, much as, you, as many of you chemist aficionados know, nitrogen is trivalent which means that its bonds stick fiercely together and prying them apart requires an immense amount of energy. This is the problem that Haber tried to resolve. And in order to do so, he built an enormous metal tank. He filled it with nitrogen and then subjected it to enormous amounts of heat and pressure. Just at the right time, he pumped hydrogen into the tank. A chemical reaction occurred, and then the miracle of modern chemistry was born. Bread from the air, otherwise known as ammonia. A liquid rich in nitrogen that you could plant in the parched field in order to grow wheat. This is the greatest discovery of it all, of them all, friends. It is what has enabled us to sustain now over seven billion people. This year alone, a hundred million tons of synthetic fertilizer will be produced in industries. That tonnage will then move to our food sources and from our food sources into our bodies. And as you are gathered in this sanctuary this afternoon, half of your body contains nitrogen from the Haber method. 
The discovery prompted and propelled Haber to the very pantheon of the scientific community. His meteoric rise punctuated by the Nobel Peace Prize in Chemistry in 1918. Now this is where the story takes a tricky turn, so bear with me. Because at the same time that Fritz was stepping onto the podium to receive his award in Stockholm, a court of Amer in America was decrying him as a war criminal due to his involvement in World War I. You see, when the conflict exploded, Haber, a deeply patriotic man, volunteered for active duty. As the war raged on and then turned into a stalemate of opposing armies firing at each other from trenches, Haber reasoned that he could break the deadlock by utilizing his knowledge in chemistry in order to weaponize gas. On April 22, 1915, a German regiment commanded by Haber would unload 150 tons of chlorine gas onto unsuspecting allies in the sleepy town of Ypres, Belgium. When the vats were open, that greenish wall began to hug the battlefield, creeping inch after inch through no man's land. As it did, the leaves shriveled. The birds would fall from the ground, and the grass changed its color into metal. In no time, the gas had reached the Allied positions, and men began to gag, drowning in their own phlegm. An observer later recounting the event states that it was hell on earth. Haber, on the other hand, returned back to Germany as a hero. He continued to pressure the high command to utilize gas as a weapon. After Germany lost the war, war he returned to work in chemistry until 1933 when he fell prey to Nazi pressure and was forced to leave his homeland. He died a penniless pauper in 1934. But there's a macabre footnote to his story. In the early 1920s, he had worked on developing an insecticide. He designed it with a very pungent odor. The name of the invention was Cyclone A. Years after his death, the Nazi war machine reached into his archives and repurposed Cyclone B, removed the pungent odor, and utilized it as a weapon of mass murder. The true irony is that hundreds of Haber's closest family and friends perished in the gas chambers. Now, admittedly, Fritz is a complex man. He is complicated, isn't he? His life presents a prime case study in contrast. Maybe as you hear his story, you have even begun to feel uncomfortable. Why? Well, because the temptation is always there 
lurking just around the corner, that desire that comes so naturally to us to try and classify people by appealing to the broadest common denominator. We have become masters in the art of categorizing. We separate people into groups in order to differentiate those with whom we agree from those whom we want nothing to do with. It's funny, though. You know, the Gospel of John doesn't fall into the temptation. Its language is purposely designed to remind the reader that when it comes to the story of Jesus, there's always more lying just beneath the surface. And it makes sense after all. You see, the beloved disciple isn't attempting to craft a newspaper account he is writing a narrative. Its purpose isn't to inform us, but rather to transform us. Now pause and think about that for a second, and then answer this. If the stated goal of the gospel is transformation, then wouldn't it be, make sense that its pages be populated by complex characters and not caricatures? ambiguous and imperfect people that are every bit as conflicted as the protagonists of our own stories. This is what John is attempting to do. That is the true artistry of his gospel. It reminds me of the words of that great American writer and poet, Henry David Thoreau, when he states that dreams are the touchstones of our characters. Now, if Thoreau is right, then perhaps as we begin this uncomfortable dance with John's imperfect believers, a question that might be asked is, what is the gospel's ultimate desire? Well, you and I know that. For throughout its narrative, he is desperately trying to move you and I from a space of passive observation to active participation. After all, didn't he say, I write these things so that you may believe? Believe. That's why John is doing more than writing history or theology. He's creating art. Now, art is great because it is like a deep well. One can plunge into it innumerable amount of times and never come up dry. So I wanna invite you today to take a plunge with me. Take a plunge into John's narrative in the hope that we will be once again doused by the water of life. Now it's all the complex and convoluted characters that populate John's narrative. None is more difficult to understand than the disciples. You see, they erupt into the scene in John chapter one, and immediately they refer to Jesus as the Messiah. The one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. 
they quickly recognize him as the promised one, the king of Israel, and they proclaim him the son of God. And yet, recognition doesn't always translate into faith. For it is not until chapter two, after they, had wit- they have witnessed the miracle at the wedding of Cana, that they actually believe. And even their belief is complex. Because a, par- a pattern begins to emerge in the narrative where Jesus says or does something in order that the disciples may, this is where you participate, believe. And thus we arrive at the text that undergirds our study for this afternoon, John chapter six. Now before we delve in, I would like to see if it's okay with you if I provide the briefest of overviews. Now, John can be easily classified into four primary parts. The first, is the prologue in John chapter one, followed by the book of signs comprising chapter two through 12, the book of glorification, chapters 13 through 20, and finally, the epilogue in chapter 21. Furthermore, we could still divide the book of signs into two primary cycles. The Cana cycle, which contains the story of the wedding at Cana, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, the discourse with the woman at the well, and the cleansing of the temple, and the festival cycle, in which Jesus' signs are intimately connected with Jewish holy days. This begins in chapter five with an unnamed feast, and then John artfully moves us through a whole year of festivities. Passover, John chapter six, Festival of Tabernacles, John 7, and the first half of John 10. Hanukkah, the last half of the 10th chapter. And again, Passover in chapter 12. I want you to remember this and keep it in the back of your mind. For John chapter 6 occurs with the backdrop of Passover that multifaceted, identifying feast that was intended to remind the people of Israel of God's dominion over, his, over the sea, his deliverance from Egypt, and his compassionate care in the wilderness by providing manna. Listen to the words by New Testament theologian Gerald L. Boucher as he describes the opening scene in John chapter six. In this context, Boucher writes, reminiscent of Israel's first generation, the crossing of the sea and the coming of the crowd out to a lonely, arid mountain region formed a perfect setting for considering how Jesus was to be related to the stories of the Exodus, of the people who are gathered there and of a God who supplies them with food and rescues them from the threatening sea. Now John will open the chapter with the now familiar words, and after these things happened. This familiar phrase is intended to clue the audience into this new reality. 
the scene has shifted. We are now in a new place, the Sea of Galilee, at a new time, the Passover, surrounded by a new cast, the disciples and the crowd. But we are all here for one reason. Jesus has performed signs. Now picture the vivid imagery as John displays Jesus atop of a mountain providing manna to 5,000 men. The language is intended to echo Exodus and also to point the Christian community forward to that table where we will share Jesus' broken body and celebrate the sacrificial lamb. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because at this point, the disciples and the crowd don't want to think about crosses or death. Their bellies full of bread and fish. They are probably recounting that oft-quoted and well-loved psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then, then John moves us once again. He shifts us from the mountain and the hillside to the Sea of Galilee. He begins by describing the disciples' plight by using some sublime language. And it was late. It was dark, reads verse 17, and Jesus had not yet come. John again is attempting to alert us to a new reality, the reality that for you and I, if Jesus is not present in the boat, friends, we are destined to dwell in darkness. And just like that, John has captured us. If his goal is to move us from passive observation to active conversation, he has done it. Because now we are not only reading the gospel, the gospel is reading us. His masterful world play introduces us into the story and we too are with the disciples shaking and shifting like driftwood amidst the sea. And that is the power of words. British essayist and writer Aldous Huxley probably puts it best in his dystopian novel, A Brave New World. Huxley writes, words are like x-rays. If you use them correctly, they can go through anything. You read and you are pierced. Well, church, John has pierced us which is why what follows in the text is so strange. Because once again, he will move the focus. He will break away from the synoptics. He will no longer talk about the storm, but rather he will talk about the distance. 
He says that the disciples have rowed into the sea for about three or four miles. Why? Well, it's because John wants you to know that this is not a rescue story. This is a crossing story. And as the disciples are moving mercilessly upon the waves, they are probably thinking again of that often quoted, well-loved psalm. Only this time they are reflecting on another stanza. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Church, is it okay if we open a parenthesis? I'm waiting. Thank you. I don't know what tumultuous tempest you are facing. I don't know what storms are shaking the very foundation of your world, but I do know this. This too shall pass. And the time will come where you can gaze out and see Jesus gliding above the waves and you will say, where were you? And he will look at you lovingly and say, I've been here the whole time. Now what do the disciples do? How do they react to this appearance? Well, your Bible says it right there. They were afraid. There is no emotion that is more pernicious to faith than fear. Fear has the capacity of zapping out every single ounce of hope from life. And you know what the real tragedy is? The sad part of the story? That we are all afraid of something. In my case, it's clowns. How sad it is that sometimes that something is God. They see him right there on the waves, and they are afraid. And what does Jesus do? He gazes upon their faces, pierces into their souls, opens his mouth, and utter the words that are to become the mantra of Scripture. Do not be afraid. I am. I am the one who forged the universe out of these own hands. I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. I am the one who rose prophet after prophet in order to call you back to me. I am the one who was born in a manger to a virgin to live with you. I am the one who will hang on a cross for you. I am the one who will resurrect after three days. I am the one who is reigning at the right side of the Father. I am the one who is coming back to judge you. And somebody said, to judge? 
And I said, yes, do not be afraid of the judgment for you know the judge and praise God, hallelujah, he is on your side. Do not be afraid. How did the disciples respond? What do they do? They try to pull Jesus back into the boat. In the same way that the crowd tried to make him king and that the ancient Israelites tried to transform him into a golden calf, you see, the problem with fear-based religion is it almost always ends in us trying to control God. We want to limit him. So is there any hope for the disciples? For these imperfect believers? In John chapter 20, we find Peter and John racing to the tomb. They see it as empty. And the gospel tells us that they believe. Friends, they have been confronted with the greatest news of it all. And what do they do? They go back home. And then, a few days later, fear has caused the disciples to lock themselves away behind shut doors. And Jesus appears in their midst. Scripture says that they recognize him and they rejoice. And what do they do? They stay in the same room. And a week later, Jesus will find him in the very same position and he will show him them the wounds on his hands and the piercing on his side. And what will they do? Oh, they will rejoice. The door will crack open a bit and they will go change the world? Well, hardly. Instead, they decide to go fishing. Are you feeling frustrated with the disciples? Are you disappointed in them? I understand. Trust me, I get it. But hey, just between you and I, we're all Adventists here. And as Adventists, we're actually pretty good at dealing with disappointment, aren't we? Amen. The anthem of Advent is marked by the dissonance of disappointment. We are all sons and daughters of the second great awakening, and for better or worse, we are heirs to a theological legacy that is equal parts invigorating and infuriating, which is why I need to say this this afternoon. To those who would propagate and promulgate a message that states that Jesus needs you to be perfect, or even worse, to those of you who would say that God hasn't returned because he is waiting to find a perfect church, I, let me tell you this. 
God does not necessitate you, your perfection for you to participate in his plan. God does not need you to be perfect for you to participate in his plan. If God used Peter, who was impetuous, and John and James, who were manipulative, if he used Thomas, who was unsure, and if he uses Pastor Miguel, who has a strange haircut, then he can also use you. Do not be afraid. So what happens after that? Well, they go fishing, and they're there. And God, relentless as he is, chases them to the shore. He calls out. And could you believe it? They don't recognize him. So he asks them to throw their nets into the water. A miracle occurs, and it is only then that they realize it is the Lord. And what do they do? Well, Peter puts his shirt on and jumps into the water. Because after all, we all get dressed to swim, right? He swims across the lake tentatively places his foot on the shore and is greeted by a charcoal fire. And then his heart breaks. The last time he saw Jesus in front of a charcoal fire was in the court of the high priest. Now all that is missing is the rooster's crow. There are no words that he can say, and so then he decides instead to turn around and haul the nets in. And after that, well, after that, he starts to count the fish. Who counts fish? Not seasoned fishermen, not adults. We weigh fish. So who counts fish? Children. Faith-filled, fearless children. I have a dream for this church, both locally and globally. This church that we all love so much. It was a dream born out of an experience I had a few years ago. I was a young pastor, and as most young ministers attempt to do, I was desperately trying to prove myself, which meant long hours. Mondays, though, were sacred. It was the time I spent with my two-year-old boy. He called them Daddy Micah days. Now, one Monday, I had a meeting at the conference office. 
I lived about three hours away, and so I knew I wasn't going to see my boy. I couldn't bear to say goodbye, so I got up, dressed in the dark, tiptoed out of the house. And just as I was about to close the door, I heard it. The little teeny steps running. I closed the door, and as I raced towards the car, I could hear it, Daddy, no go. Daddy, no go, stay. I cried all the way to the conference. And then, around mid-morning, Linda called me. She said, your son hasn't stopped crying all morning because he's my son when he misbehaves. <laughs> she said, every so often, he runs to the door and he tries to open it. He bangs on there and says, Daddy, no go. And then it hit me. My two-year-old son thought I had abandoned him. Fear-based religion only creates shut-door doctrines. Adventist theology needs to be more than an attempt to deal with our abandonment issues. What we believe, what we preach, and what we practice needs to be a responsible response to the one who holds all the keys the one who can open all the doors so that you and I can once again be with our daddy. So will we ever achieve perfection? Probably not. But I am buoyed by the idea that the same grace that was afforded to the disciples time and time and time again is available to me. And the only thing I need to do is say, yes, Lord, I want it. Folks, religion isn't that complicated. Faith isn't that complicated. Christianity isn't that complicated. Do you want to go to heaven? Then guess what? You are going. That isn't cheap grace. That's costly grace because it cost God everything. So what do we do with our imperfect believers? Well, probably the best thing that we can do is just sit back, smile, and say, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.